The Democratic Socialists of America have grown by about 20,000 members since the Trump election. But what's the pathway forward for creating a mass-based pro-worker socialist organization in the United States? Today we talk to three union organizers and members of the DSA about the way forward and the upcoming convention. You're listening to the Smash Up Derby. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? How's the move going? Uh, the move is, uh, is it's, it's, uh, all of my stuff is in a storage bin in St. Louis right now. And Excellent. I'm visiting, visiting my parents in lovely southern Ohio and uh, sequestered a guest bedroom as the recording studio. So you will occasionally hear the screams of nieces and nephews and dogs in, in the background of this, <laughs> of this episode. How are things for you? Did you get, did you get out and uh, do some fun stuff this weekend? I, uh, I actually, I went to the, I went to the lake. Uh, well, not the lake that's here, but another lake, uh, my aunt's house in, in New Hampshire. Oh, nice. It got away with the whole family, I hope. Yeah. So, and uh, you're sending, you know, sort of sat by the, sat, sat by the lake and, and drank some beer and ran around. And you're sending your oldest uh, child off to college in a couple well, of yes, weeks. Yes, sending my eldest child off to college in uh, in uh, four weeks. Wow, that's exciting. That's exciting. Yes. Then you'll, we'll have so then much, ha- you'll have so much bills. time once, yeah, well, you have lots of bills, but you'll have so much time to do the podcast. That yes, we'll, exactly. We'll be just churning exactly. them out left and right. Right, right. And once you're re- parenting responsibilities of no, re- really, what it means is I have less free labor. You have less free labor, right? So, <laughs> in four weeks, when Jonathan's child goes off to college, we will I'll have do, to do we, the dishes more. You'll have to do the dishes more, but this podcast yeah. will no longer be free. It will be right. Uh, we're right. going to be charging uh, four hundred dollars an episode <laughs> in order to pay for college. Um, so anyway, and you'll hear the sounds of me doing the dishes as we record. That's right. <clears throat> Be prepared for that. Um, we better really take the quality up a notch. <laughs> All right. So the last couple episodes we put out, we put out a healthcare episode a couple weeks ago, and then we did a great episode with Kim Lawson, yes. a former UE organizer. That episode is has broken a record for our uh, best listened to episode so far. And uh, in fact, I got a couple of organizers uh, told me they listened to it and really enjoyed it. So oh, that's good. Yeah, so that's really nice. And, and that healthcare episode, we we made a prediction. And what? And I think I got it wrong, but go ahead. <laughs> Did you? Wasn't our? What was it? Wasn't our prediction that they would try to just make the bill a little bit more racist? I, I mean, I thought they would just um, buy off a couple of, uh, or they would just shift shift money from the cities to some. Republican states and buy off these final senators, which they already did in the House, right? So they, there's this thing called the Buffalo bribe. Have you heard of this? No, so in, no. In the House, there's this thing called the Buffalo bribe, and what they did is that was, is that is that for the city or livestock? <clears throat> it is for the uh, city of Buffalo. I think it's a Western New York thing. So what they did is they bought a couple <laughs> of rural congressional votes, uh, rural Republican congressional votes by insisting that the state of New York pick up all the Medicaid funding uh, or costs for the, um, these rural counties. And so this will be a, a, a uh, windfall for these rural counties. Right. And there's, of course, only one county, a county excluded in that, and that is New York. So it will not be a windfall for New York. 
but a right, windfall right. for every every other place. And so anyway, I figured some version of that would end up in the Senate bill and they would right. get a couple of votes. But alas, total collapse. <laughs> the incompetence just flows freely. I, I overestimated the Republicans' ability to get anything done. Right, right. So where did I make my mistake, Jonathan? Well, it can't have been in assuming that the Republicans would be afraid to go more racist. No, I don't think that's it. So what is it? What, where, where, did, where did the bill fall apart? Uh, well, this is, this is, I think, where, uh, you know, it would be good to, you know, reference people who are smarter than we are. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Do you have some of those references? And so, so, you know, so one, one of the, one of the people who's in my, uh, smarter than me category is, uh, is this guy, Corey Robin, who's been basically arguing that the Republicans, that, uh, that sort of Trump is kind of like Carter, um, in the sense of the whole Republican ideology of the Republican revolution is kind of. The regime is is dying the same way that the sort of the New Deal regime was dying in mm. the 70s mm. um, and that they can't actually like coherently govern uh, because they're, they're just so ideologically out of touch. Uh, right. With the with the, uh, with the rest uh, of the country with. Yeah. With the, even in their own districts. See, I had this theory that if if they could. Like that, the, oh, so they're they're just trapped right now, right? Like they have yeah, no they're way trapped out. between. They just they just they just want to take money from your kid's cancer treatment, right? And use it to pay off their rich friends, right? And this turns out to, and as we've pointed out before, this goes against what they could do. It's not just a political problem, right? In other words, it's it's not just right. it's not just that. Um, they can't put together the coalition of politicians. It's that they're really going to screw over all of uh, Americans. But it's also that they're not delivering the money to their benefactors. And and I think that's the thing right. that's being missed. Like that's the trap. The trap between their benefactors and their base. And the reason that you that you know this here's here's my new the- my next theory, which is probably going to be we're going to talk in two weeks about how this theory is wrong, but. <laughs> My next theory is that we should rename the podcast and incorrect <laughs> theories podcast. That's right. So, so if they were really just trying to get out of a political jam, what they would do is they would pass a 500-page bill that renamed Obamacare the um, American Health Care Act, claim that they've repealed and replaced it, and then have all the southern states accept the uh, Medicare, Medicaid money, right? Right. And then it's a windfall, and all of a sudden it looks like they just delivered a whole bunch of money to their base. Um, but I think the problem, the, but part of the problem with that is, and again, this, is, this goes back to some of the people smarter than me, is that part of why they have to repeal Obamacare is because otherwise they can't pass permanent tax cuts down the road. That they can't even deliver vast amounts of money to the wealthy people. That so this right, is this right. is another thing that nobody's talking. I mean, I guess people are talking about it, but so their replacement to the individual mandate is a ban for six months. So instead right, of being right. forced to have health care, you're going to be forced not to have health care. Right, and that's their plan to force people to have health care. Well, it, it's, it cuts costs, right? Because like some percentage of those people will die and then they won't come back into the system. Well, I suppose, I suppose. But, and but, those are the people who are the most expensive to insure. So you're, so, you know. 
But no, that that problem idea, solved. But that idea is 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 um, it's aimed at young people because it's supposed to scare young people into getting insurance. An individual choice thing, <laughs> right? So, Wait, because because young people are known to make really rational, like well thought out decisions well, about their long term health. But that's exactly how they explain it. That it's it's sort of like we're not going to force you to have insurance, but we're gonna we're gonna try to scare you into having insurance. It seems to be. It seems to be dead in the water. The best part of all of this, though, is that today one of the Republicans um, was blaming female Republicans for the whole fiasco, which is just awesome, <laughs> right? Because now they're right. eating their own, and you know they should drive the rest of the female senators out of the party. The two or three there are. So right, right. Um, anyway, because so, they're probably they're secret brochalists. They're secret brochalists. These are like the Republicans. <laughs> right. The Republic Bros. I mean, it doesn't even make sense because the party's already the total Republic Bro. It is, you know, that is the Republican Party, but sure, let's get It's the Republic Bros. Okay, well, look, I think we've talked about healthcare. This is so the healthcare situation to be continued. And yes. uh, we'll, see, we'll, see, we'll see where we are in a couple of weeks with it. We've got, a, we've got a cool podcast today, actually. We do. This we is have, an awesome podcast. Yeah, we've got some great guests with us. What's going on? The big picture here is that there's this, a couple years ago, there was this tiny socialist organization called the Democratic Socialists of America. And because it, it probably had like 5,000 members. And, but because of the Bernie Sanders campaign and then the Trump victory, this thing has exploded. Now it's on the verge of having 25,000 members. Uh, yes. across the United States. That's that's pretty exciting. And on top of all that, it's going to have a, and this is, you know, it's a very pro-labor. This is a working class, a, a podcast about working class politics. And, you know, this is a very pro-labor sort of organization. And so we're going to talk today with three union organizers who are members of this organization. And we're going to talk with them because the National Convention of the Democratic Socialists of America is in about, uh, well, by the time you're listening to it, it will be upon us. It will be, it's it's August 3rd through 6th uh, in Chicago, 2017. And uh, and so that's what we're doing today. So this is is our intro to to this great episode. uh, Right. It's coming up with our three guests and... uh, We'll eventually let you listen to them. Yeah. Instead of just us blathering. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smash Up podcast. I'm here with my uh, co-host, Sam. Hi, everybody. And uh, for this episode, uh, we're talking to uh, three uh, labor uh, activists, union organizers, who are members of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. Um, DSA and their youth organization, the Young Democratic Socialists, were created in the 1980s out of uh, a couple of old and new left organizations uh, and was led uh, initially by Michael Harrington, who is best known for his book on poverty in the U.S. called The Other America. Um, For the last 30 years, the DSA has had a a small, but we would like to think important, I guess, uh, influence in labor circles, mostly in New York and Chicago. But that really began to change with the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. Uh, Bernie was able to explain the term democratic socialism in a practical way that legitimized the idea for many new activists. As a result, the DSA membership started to grow through 2016. 
Uh, but it was the Trump victory that really changed things. Since November, DSA has grown into a nationwide activist organization with over 100 chapters and at last count over 24,000 members. DSA will be holding its national convention in Chicago in early August. And so we wanted to discuss DSA's relationship to the labor movement with our guests who, as I said, are both union organizers and DSA members. Um, so to, I'm going to introduce our guests. Uh, Bianca Cunningham is a union organizer with the Communication Workers of America, CWA, in New York City. In 2014, she organized the Verizon Wireless Store where she worked and her local won a union contract only after striking Verizon in 2015. In 2016, she was fired by, for, fired by her Verizon for her union activism in a case which Verizon has now appealed to the circuit court. She is the chair of the New York City DSA labor branch and mentors three new DSA chapters in Missouri. Say hi to our listeners, Bianca. Hi, everyone. And, and tell me if that's accurate. That's something just that Sam wrote for me to read. <laughs> Did I get actually, that right? It's actually seven stores, just to be technical. Oh, you, you organize all seven of, stores. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, all of Brooklyn yeah. is organized. And oh, one sweet. store in Massachusetts. <laughs> Incredible. How did you pick up the Massachusetts store? Victory reached out, and then we helped them organize, actually, like a year later. Okay. So. Great, great. All right, well, welcome. Welcome. Yeah. And uh, so our, our second guest, uh, Sean Collins, is a lead organizer for Service Employees International Union, SEIU Local 200 United, where for the last five years he has organized university employees, including, I believe, some of my friends uh, who work as adjuncts uh, up here in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, he is the secretary of the Upstate New York DSA chapter. Uh, say hi, Sean. Hi. Hello. And uh, just uh, it's an uh, Albany chapter in here in Upstate. Ah, uh, the Albany chef. Because right. upstate New York's a big place, right? It's vast. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, did, you, did you indeed organize some uh, adjuncts in uh, Vermont? Uh, I, I, was, I, I was involved in the, in the team. I was not on the ground there, but I do know some of the folks up there. Uh, April Howard, I'm assuming. Yep. Maybe? Yep. Yeah, she's fantastic. She yes, she's awesome. Star. And then Eric, our third guest, Eric Robertson, is the political director and business agent for Teamsters Local 728 in Atlanta, Georgia. He was a UPS employee and rank and file activist for five years before coming on staff for the last 13 years with the Teamsters in Georgia. And he is on the executive committee of the Atlanta Metro DSA. Hello, everybody. Hi. What, uh, Eric, what did you do when you worked at, you worked at UPS? What was your job? Slinging boxes. I was a, I was inside. I was an inside employee. I uh, started out loading trucks and then sorting uh, packages, and then I ended up on what's called a, as an e-reg driver, driving irregular packages around, uh, delivering them to the outbounds. Uh, so like over seventy packages and anything that wasn't in a box, basically. And how did you end up on staff? What what happened? Well, um, I was basically, there was a, a kind of a, an upsurge. The local executive board had sp was split and kind of gone to war with each other. And I was uh, aligned with a group of rank and file uh, stewards and activists. And we um, organized a slate and took over, uh, won the election, uh, then had, to, had a rerun election because the people who lost the election that they ran uh, protested their own election. And mm -hmm. so ended up having to run again later on in the following year and won even by a even wider margin. And we've basically ever since uh, uh, just keep getting uh, getting reelected and uh, growing the union and 
it's uh, just been a, it's been a it's been a pretty incredible journey. Yeah, you told me how how much you the union had grown while you'd been there. What what were the numbers? Well, when we took over, we had had one major freight employer go out of business, uh, so we had around fifty seven hundred members, and currently we are hovering around nine thousand. Yeah, that's incredible. All in right to work, Georgia. Correct. That's incredible. All right. Well, the thing that brings us all together here today, which is not just that we're all, uh, you know, labor activists and, and uh, union members, union organizers, but also members of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is just a group that has um, exploded. If you had told me that this group was going to explode at this rate in the last year, I just uh, if, a year ago, I just would have never believed it. So. Um, I want to ask all of you why, you know, let's let me just start with um, Eric. Uh, you know, why, why are you a member of DSA? How do you see that fitting into your uh, your life in the union? Yeah. Um, so basically, I, I'd been uh, joined, got involved in the organized left at a pretty early age. And so I'd been through several left groups by the time uh, I had moved here to Georgia and was involved and had helped build some organizations here. And then uh, about 2004, I, uh, well, 2005 or 2006, I basically started, uh, I left the organization that I was a member of and had not been involved in organized left politics since then. Uh, you know, I still was active and stuff, but I was not going to meetings and, or, you know, trying to join anybody. And then when the Bernie campaign kicked off and, and, I saw sort of where things were going with that. Um, I saw how the relationship was between the DSA and what they were doing in the Bernie campaign, and they were basically doing what I saw as a, a, a principled way to involve themselves in that campaign. <clears throat> and uh, it just it, it was like you know sort of like oh they they're actually doing things the way I think they should be done. I was I had always already friends with quite a few people here in Atlanta that were in DSA and they had always tried to get me to join and um, so finally I, I did I did join um, and uh, after really working with them on the uh, Georgia for Bernie Sanders uh, campaign the campaign that we had here locally was not uh, the Bernie campaign didn't get on the ground here till pretty late in the primaries. And so we had basically had a grassroots uh, organization that grew to several hundred, you know, we'd have these big mass meetings with several hundred people. I was involved in that with, with DSA people. So we, you know, um, so once I, I, I joined in August of last year, sort of after that, it sort of wound down. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously this is when the big growth happened. I think all of us have joined within the last couple of years, although I believe at some point I was a member in the 90s or something. But, <laughs> I, I joined in the late 80s. You did. Uh, that's impressive. So but but uh, like I joined for a year or something and then because I'd get mad at something, I joined for a year and then, you know, there wouldn't really be much going on around where I was. And, and so then I would, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't last. Bianca, do you want to talk about how you got involved with TSA? So um, originally, you know, of course, I belong to CWA. We came out as one of the unions to endorse. And so I was already working on the Bernie campaign um, alongside my union. Um, another thing, project that uh, myself and some other people from my workplace, as well as some unit organizers here, had going with something called Project for Working Class Power. We would just like do like a analysis on capitalism for some reason. It was like more or less a reading group. Um, when we realized that 
Bernie was not going to win, we were trying to figure out like how to shift this momentum or, you know, retain this momentum. And what should we do with these people who have been coming out for Bernie, who have been coming to our project for working class power meetings. And so us uh, CWA along with NICENA members decided to come together and form a labor branch. So that was my first introduction into DSA. I have to admit that initially I was just going along. I didn't really understand. I understood the momentum, but I didn't really understand, um, what we were going to be able to do uh, with this new found group. Mm -hmm. But quickly, I realized that it was really powerful to have members from over 20 different unions around the city be able to respond to social justice issues in a way that didn't have to bureaucracy. Uh, we didn't have to wait for the bureaucrats to get it together and ma make a statement. We can make a statement on our own um, in labor in this city. And I thought that was really important. And I also felt like it was really important for us as union members to be on the forefront of other uh, fights and struggles uh, around the city. And so I saw an opportunity to do that and really form um, our own kind of strategy here in the city. Uh, and so that was really appealing to me and I'm so glad I'm here. And, and so you're currently the chair of the labor branch in um, New York. New York is one of the few locals of the 100 locals or so, or 100 chapters of DSA that has a labor branch. Um, why don't you go ahead and just say what, what does the labor branch do? Um, originally, I would just say that the, uh, when we, when my comrades and I decided to pursue the, our work inside of DSA, we started, there were only two branches, or we created two branches, which is one in Brooklyn and one in labor simultaneously. Our labor branch is now composed of probably um, about a little bit over 100 members from over 30 different unions. And what we do is come together and speak about um, like the possibility of right to work. We speak about... Um, organizing struggles or organizing jobs that are going on um, throughout the city and we just basically share information and share resources with one another um, and come out in solidarity uh, on the uh, with labor and as well as other social justice issues we've also been instrumental with our chapter from get, for getting this uh, mobilizer program off the ground and I'll talk a little bit about that later okay. um, a little bit more about that later and then another thing that we do is like we offer we have a lot of union organizers and for better or worse we have a lot of experience about training and how to talk to people and so we're offering those types of skills to the general membership um, in the form of training so that's how that's our role right now yeah that's what organizers do all day long right is is right. talk to people have the sort of the same union conversation over and over and over they get pretty skilled at it um so sean why don't you tell us about your joining but also let's i, I want to add on the question of um you know not just sort of how you got involved but but why is it important that um socialists be involved in the labor movement what is it about labor that's so critical yeah. Um, so I, I, I joined I joined uh, recently as you know, recently as well, uh, you know, around the time of the election. I think, you know, a lot of my a lot of my motivation in terms of, of you know, joining DSA was, uh, you know, Albany, Albany and, you know, the capital district. Yes. While we're, you know, we're in New York, you know, sort of New York is, you know, considered this traditional blue state, very progressive. Uh, uh, upstate is a, is a different is a different creature. Uh, sometimes it sometimes gets lost. Uh, and, and when people are talking about New York and, and, and in Albany in particular, uh, in the sort of associated counties, it's, these are very much like these are very much like machine towns. These the machines, the the sort of old democratic machines, have never really truly gone away. Uh, they may not be as uh, 
uh, as a uh, you know, sort of uh, ubiquitous as they were in the past, but they're still very much, you know, in place. And so I wanted to be, you know, a part of an organization that, uh, you know, that offered a, a counter a counterbalance to that. And and uh, and DSA seemed like the, you know, seemed like the right, you know, right fit um, for that. And a lot of folks that I know and a lot of folks that I respect have in the area, particularly in the labor movement, have uh, have been involved and have been members. Uh, but they they were involved, and I have uh, you know, and they encouraged uh, me to get involved. So that's why I I signed up and really just rolled up my sleeves to to get involved in, in building the chapter. How big is your chapter there? Uh, it, it's we're we're about 130, 100 and I, I should know this number off immediately. It's it's somewhere between one hundred and thirty and one hundred and forty, uh, and that sounds large, but we're spread out over one, two, three, four, five, six counties. Okay, well, it's still it's still large. Yeah. 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 So why is it important for uh, for socialists to be involved in the labor movement? I mean, I think it's I think it's in, it's inherent to you know it's it's the it's you know socialism is sort of the uh, you know is the you know is the alternative to, to capitalism. Uh, we can't we can't promote and, and push and build towards that to, towards that alternative without the folks and the voices that are you know that are silenced under under capital and uh so you know they have to be they have to be the front um of, of that fight eric tell, talk about a little bit how you think a union um the union model fits with dsa maybe also about this the same question i asked sean there why do socialists need an organization why why do why does labor need socialists well i mean i think to sort of start it off i think that there has never uh the, the big things that labor has won throughout history um, has been a result of socialists in the labor movement. Um, and so you go if you go back to the eight hour day, you go back, I mean, even social security, all this stuff. Um, it's always been socialists who were within the labor movement challenging the labor movement to go beyond what people think are is possible and to and to um, fight for more transformative change. And so, um, you know, the, even the more mainstream labor movement benefited from that agitation because uh, without them, um, you know, mobilizing people to, to come out and fight for these things, um, it wasn't the, uh, you know, the Samuel Gompers of the world did not build the labor movement, didn't win all those gains. It was people, it was the radicals that pushed the envelope on li literally every one of those questions, uh, including uh, integrating the labor movement and, and including bringing women into the labor movement and giving and, and uh, fighting for equality for women within the labor movement, for bringing in the more uh, lower paid masses of workers during the CIO uh, period during, in, the, um, in the 30s. So, I mean, the role that labor's always played has been to uh, be the the people who push the envelope, the people who push for better and stronger organization, the people who, mm -hmm. who push for labor move, the labor to have a less accommodationist approach to capital. Um, and why, why do you think socialists have been able to do that? I mean, is it just a broader, you know, it's just having a broader view of what what's at stake yeah i mean i think it's a it's a it's a, a little bit of a couple of things i think one of the things is is that because we're anti-capitalists we look at the lay of the land and say you know this is something that we can change as a process of building towards a more fundamental type of social transformation and so when we fight for these we fought we and we have fought for these reforms it is all it's always from the standpoint of building power we've been able to uh play that role as a, as a sort of a we have a, a short-term vision of fighting for more you know fundamental gains 
pushing to not accept the things that are just you know uh, rolled out to us by the companies um, because we understand capital we understand their motivations better than than a lot of other uh, people that are involved in the labor movement and so we see sort of what's going on below the surface and we understand that that, that, that stuff we can that gives us the ability to better strategize and to better look for the weaknesses that we need to exploit in order to win so Bianca what do you think the impact uh, or the relationship between DSNA, DSA and labor should be? I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think at this point, we're so, um, a lot of our membership is so new. Um, it's hard to really uh, come to a, like a real solution with this. I think that we're still figuring it out. But I, I think, as at least for now, I see our relationship as being one of solidarity, the way we showed up for the Verizon strikers, the way that we showed up for the AT&T strikers a couple months ago. Um, Why don't you tell us about that? I know that there was a, well, there was a Verizon strike nationally, right? And DSA mobilized for it. How successful was that? So it was very successful. I think it was the beginning of an official relationship between DSA and I would say um, unions here. Um, they were able to, we were on a really long 49 day strike for those people who don't know. And um, it could be pretty grueling having to be on the picket line, especially in the summer months. And um, what DSA was able to do was adopt a picket line uh, once or twice a week in different boroughs and really just give the workers uh, a chance to kind of rest easy. We would finish the day for them. And I think that was huge, um, a huge act of solidarity that did not go unnoticed and was very much appreciated. Um, a couple months ago, AT&T workers uh, went on a three-day strike and uh, both uh, Zelig Stern and myself, who were both organizers here at CWA, um, you know, really did like this unofficial call, um, call to action and just like, found contacts in almost every single chapter, I believe, um, and just called people and said, hey, can you show up? When can you show up? And this is where the picket line is. Let me know what you can do. And I think uh, as a result, you know, DSA was present at over 66 picket lines around the country. Mm -hmm. um, we showed up more than the AFL-CIO. The political, political director of CWA certainly noticed that and was very impressed. And so I just think that, you know, it's the beginning of this relationship um, of solidarity between uh, ourselves and um, unions around. Well, I know I spent a Saturday at a picket line in Collinsville, Illinois, a real small, you know, small town outside of St. Louis. And uh, there was very young, very enthusiastic strikers there. It was really exciting. And um, I would argue, and I would say too, there's young, very enthusiastic strikers who a lot of, for a lot of them was their first time. I know that this was the first like mass retail strike that ever happened in the United States. Um, but also I would say it was great education for our members who are also some of them very young and very, um, you know, new to this whole idea of like a labor movement. And so I know that we have like a lot of like, we talk a lot of theory and we talk about things like some sort of like in this abstract way of like why the labor movement is important in DSA's work. But I think that them being present on the picket line really solidified things for some people. So I think that was great education as well. That's right. I would say every DSA or where I was in St. Louis um, who came to those picket lines had never been to a picket line before. So it was, it was, uh, it was exciting for everybody. Sean, I'm going to throw you the, the tough question here. How, how does, so DSA has grown, it's tripled at least in size, maybe quadrupled in size, even in, in about six months, maybe eight months. Um, how, how does it grow more? How do we keep growing? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. No, no kidding. That is, that is the tough question. I mean, I think, 
I think just as important, you know, in terms of continuing to grow is that, you know, the double, you know, the doubling or the tripling in size, like they really need to, you know, they really need to be activated and really brought into the fold. Mm-hmm. And, and then they, you know, they also in turn become, uh, you know, become the folks that, you know, recruit that, that, that next wave. And so I think two things can be done in tandem, but I think it's really important to, you know, with these new members and as all these new chapters and organizing committees are sort of, that those folks are also, you know, sort of, it's important that they're not, they're not just brought there, but they're sort of, you know, you know, educated as to the process in which we encourage, you know, turn folks out to that thing and phone bank our membership and really give them the skills so that they can then in turn, uh, you know, go back and, and you know, talk, they feel a little bit more comfortable talking about their membership in, in DSA because I and whatever other organizations they might be in, because I think uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, folks who have been uh, organizers or, you know, have been and, uh, you know, in the, in you know, organizing on the left or in labor movement, they sort of know how to have that conversation, have that rep, but then they sort of assume that it's, um, it's, it's natural. But a lot of times, especially a lot of new folks, I mean, you can, yeah, I heard, you know, to, you know, against Bianca's point is a lot of time, their first time at a picket line and they, and they don't really know how to, and they don't really know how to talk about that experience in a way that, you know, that really speaks to the power that they felt and the, and the, and the emotions that were, that, that, you know, they were feeling at that, at picket line. They were just, they sort of talk about it in terms of like, there I was, I was waving a sign, it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not in terms of like, it wasn't, it's not, it, you know, it should be fun, but it was, it wasn't just in terms of it was fun, but also like, you know, we, we really made an impact because, you know, you know, Bianca mentioned that we were at 66 picket lines, right? Like I know from the picket lines that, you know, we, you know, we tried to swell here in the capital district, like up in, in Queensbury, uh, you know, a dot on the map to you, but a, a suburb of a small, of a small town here in New York, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a suburb of a small city in, uh, here in upstate New York, just the three or four, uh, you know, folks there in, in the Southern Adirondacks that went to that picket line, that was the only additional uh, you know, presence that they had there in that picket line. And it's important. So I guess it's a really sort of synthesize my point. It's like, it's important that those folks understand it. It's just like, we did something and it really mattered to the, to the three folks or four folks that were, that work at that store. Right. And, and that's, and that's why you got to get in so that next time if they, cause they still, these AT&T mobility workers, they still don't have a contract as far as I know. Uh, if they go out again, we need to make sure that we have, hell, if we just have six members, members uh, six DSA members up there in, in Queensbury, that we've, we've 100% improved in our, on our support and solidarity for those folks up there. Eric, you know, most of the new people who've come into DSA, my, my assumption is they are not union members and they, they, you know, these are all their first picket lines and that sort of, sort of thing. How do we bring DSA and these new members closer to labor? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, actually, when I uh, we started having these uh, socials here in Atlanta, and I, so I started being able to really have a chance to talk to a lot of the younger new members. And I mean, the level of not you know, just not, not not ever having been engaged with the labor movement was profound. I mean, they, there were folks in there that were like, "So, are the Teamsters the only union in Georgia?" Mm-hmm. Or I didn't I, I didn't know unions were legal in Georgia. Um, things like that, and it really kind of blew me away. Um, and and so that's a, it, it, I think it's going to be really tough. And I think that what what we talked about earlier, I think one of the roles that um, labor activists who are joining DSA and 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 um, who have been in DSA for a while, it's it's really essential that we figure out ways to educate folks on the history of the labor movement, the connection to the left of the labor that the labor movement has historically had, and the role that labor has played um, throughout history. Um, people need to have that grasp 
to be effective at at uh, uh, building a, a, a socialist movement in this in this country because there's nothing uh, whether you're talking about the actual union movement or you're talking about workers that are non-union the struggle of the working class is 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 central to what we need to do to, in order to change the country so people that are coming in I, clearly have a fairly abstract understanding of what socialism is they haven't been involved in the class struggle and so they they need to be if even if it is sort of abstract to them they need to understand that um, but also i think what bianca is talking about is really important uh, you know taking people down to actions labor actions and showing them uh how labor uh fights and things like that and give them also it gives them also just a better sense of I know the first time I ever went to a picket line, it blew my hair back when I was mm-hmm. when I was like fi- uh, 15 years old, and um, it really was one of the things that won me over to class struggle politics. Um, I think that we, you know, need to be just sort of letting these people get more familiar with labor by taking them out to actions and things like that, so that they can also get a sense of you know the power that workers have um, in terms of changing the country. Um, but lots of internal education needs to happen, and I think that is going to take a variety of different forms. Um, but clearly, it has to happen. I mean, there's just there's just you know tens of thousands of people. I will say that uh, one of the things that didn't put me over the top, but it helped me after, validate my decision to join DSA was as soon as I joined DSA, um, I actually had other union uh, vice pre- uh, presidents, vice presidents, you know, some some lower level officers and activists and stuff were joining as well. But also we're talking about Bernie's policy, you know, the ones that didn't join even there was just a lot of rank and file workers talking about Bernie, po- Bernie Sanders politics and referring uh, to democratic socialism in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that was like that gave that's the first time I've ever seen that in my life. So and uh, um Right. So Bernie, I mean, you know, we haven't really talked about this, but obviously the um, the Bernie Sanders campaign just opened up uh, a political space where DSA could grow very quickly. I mean, I think that's it's obvious, but it's it's um, it's not just it wasn't just the mobilization. It's almost like a, a change in the political culture. Yeah. I mean, I I, um, when people talk, ask me about the Bernie campaign and, and what he did well, you know what the Bernie campaign accomplished for for the um, for the left because um, mm-hmm. you get folks that are critical of him running as a Democrat and those kind of things. And obviously, the first thing I'd say is, well, the guy got 13 million votes, came within you know four percentage points of actually winning the presidential nomination. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the, the other big thing he did was he made socialism a legit current within the American body politic, and right. so no longer uh, used to when you'd mention you'd say, hey that guy's a socialist to some you know to a labor official or or, or uh, even a even a democrat like party operative you'd get the eye roll you know right um because because their 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 mental picture is of uh you know the, the sectarian paper seller type guys um and they don't really sell papers as much anymore but um but that's the image <laughs> a lot of uh, older folks would have and now it's more like there's just all these people that have been operating within the labor movement that are actually coming out and say, yeah, you know, I've always been a socialist, you know, and they're just, and, and it's just become much easier to, to be, to be seen as a legitimate uh, political activist or uh, union activist and be a socialist. And that's it. That was just huge because the, the red baiting used to be just so intense mm-hmm. in my union in particular. And it just is not there anymore. The only people who red bait you now are the people who, you know, the Trump supporters and the, the real hardcore Republicans, and those people, get, they red bait Democrats. So no one right. really bats an eye, bats <laughs> right, an right. eye at it, you know? 
I mean, that is part of the political culture, too, is that they spent so much time calling Obama socialists. And, you know, half the population loved Obama. And so there was sort of this moment where people were like, oh, well, if he's a socialist, maybe I am, too. Right. Um, of course, Obama is not a socialist, but that's the craziness of political uh, discourse, I guess. Bianca, I, what do you think about um, how do we grow going forward? I think I agree um, with what's been said earlier, which is that, you know, I thought about, like, how do we grow going forward and looking at all of our, you know, growth in the past year. And I just feel like, um, you know, that to me is not so much of a priority um, as it is the education and um, even I would even say radicalizing the current membership that we have. I mean, I think that a lot of people joined um, on the heels of Trump um, winning, and I think that that's amazing, but I think that for better or worse, and we are Big Ten, and I do understand that, I think that there needs to be some sort of like, um, they're in the door now, and I, and I always say this in our chapter, it's our job to move them further left, you know, if possible, uh, and re and really have like a class-based analysis and not just be like, I'm mad at Trump, which, I, which, which is how I view like a lot of the new membership is that like, this is the resistance but that they could go for like some like type of like progressive Democrat in the future. And I know that's a big argument, but um, so, 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 so to me, I, I would like quality over quantity at this point. Um, but like I said, I agree with what was said before is like, as we educate and engage with those people and bring them into the fold, then they will in turn bring others into the fold. I think there needs to be, um, I think that we just need to put our, our heels in and like really get to work in our respective uh, cities and towns um, and really and really become like a force, like even more so than what we are now. And I think the people will automatically come because it'll be uh, obvious that this is where the real work is happening. This is where the revolution is happening. Um, and I think that if we do those things, then we don't have to worry about growth in the future. Um, well, I know there's a ton of people out there really doing that work, which is exciting. And I've been, so I um, first met with the organizing committee in St. Louis six or eight months ago or so, and it was just five people. And I think they said we had like 27 members. And I said, well, we really need a plan to reach out and contact people and try to bring them in. Um, and the truth is we didn't, uh, we didn't need that kind of plan. We just needed a plan to go out and do stuff and show that we were active and show that because the people just kept coming and by the time uh let's see i, I believe a couple weeks ago there was over 150 members in the chapter uh which is just amazing for st louis by the way upstate new york yeah 150 members whatever right <laughs> but no <laughs> for st louis that's uh it's kind of shocking but i want to ask about uh, well jonathan do you have anything you want to you want to ask? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I was particularly, uh, you know, curious about um, the bit that's, uh, in, Bianca, about your um, mentoring uh, new DSA chapters in Missouri and sort of how particularly union organizing, right, we have a, a, often a very a kind of staff intensive model, right? Um, and so I'm really interested in sort of this idea of how, how, uh, um, uh, you know, how DSA is sort of growing to scale without clearly like a lot of staff. Um, and then also, hey, I mean, three new chapters in Missouri, even though as a as a as a someone who grew up in Kansas, I have a deep intrinsic hatred for Missouri. Um, <laughs> well, and Bianca was the uh, mentor for, for our chapter, too. So I heard. Oh, you're one of the mentees. I was one of the mentees, uh, although I wasn't on the organizing committee, so I didn't really have direct contact with her. But I was 
So I was a mentee by extension. So, yeah. Shout out to St. Louis. Yeah. They're my nearest and dearest to my heart. And the first OC that I uh, mentored, um, they were great. They are great to work with, and I'm so super proud of like all of the growth and the hard work that they've been doing. And I know that they're, you all are going to be great. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, do you want to talk about that process, the process of mentoring a, a chapter? Because I think it is a key part of the growth. Um, how the how the DSA has managed to grow from what you know what maybe four or five chapters last year, early last year, to what is really amazing 100 chapters maybe in every state of the union yeah so i you know originally national leadership reached out um to me and also other um union organizers who they were familiar with who are already in the fold um and had like chapters that were established um and said hey you know we want to start this program or you know you can offer your knowledge to um new you know obviously they don't have a huge staff you know i think there's what like eight or nine of them maybe um and so it's like we we, we need to get these chap we have all this interest and we want to get these ocs these organizing committees off the ground and help these folks and it will be really helpful if you could take on some of this work and just really establish a relationship with them and it's good for not only the organization nationally but also great for them and great for me for the experience and so yeah um so what i do is basically once uh, a couple people uh show interest um, online, I'll reach out to them um, and really just walk them through the steps, not only like the technical steps of like, how do you, you know, how many people do you need for an organizing committee or how many people do you need officially for a branch, those types of things, yes. But then also just talking to them about strategy, about what their vision is for where they live. And I, I have to say, like, I've learned so much from, um, you know, the folks in Missouri, because it's so different here in New York City. And I want to really tip my hat to them because I know, you know, they have so much more of a challenge than, you know, I had or we do here um, being like in, you know, one of, you know, if not one of the, you know, most progressive cities or whatever you want to call it um, in this country. And like also just having like a plethora and a wealth of like organizations and people on the ground who are doing like mm -hmm. this type of like work. And like they didn't have that. So it's like we're really just like power mapping with them and saying like, let's go through the organizations that we know of that are in your town. Who, where do we want to start? How do we want to build this? build these things? Do we want to be involved in electoral politics and really like fleshing out a plan with them? Um, and then um, just talking to them about how to build relationships with one another, how to establish some like, um, you know, foundation for education about what democratic socialism is. Um, and yeah, it's a whole process. I usually work with um, an organizing committee for at least six months, if not more. I've been working for, with St. Louis for a while now. I don't, uh, I, they don't need me as often as they used to because um, well, they're so good. great but every once in a while I will keep in touch with them I just saw Maddie at People Summit um, we did a training there and um, yeah it's just about building relationships and I think um, you know organizing relationships are really important in an organization like you know DSA hey Sean what is a union a good model for DSA what is it that DSA can import and learn from how unions function? Huh. Um, is a union a good model for DSA? Like a I DSA mean, chapter. Yeah. I think. I think yes. I mean, I think yes and no. I mean, I want to speak to at a turn. I, you know, I think I, I. Hopefully, it doesn't. It doesn't learn. You know, it's learned some of the long, the the wrong things, right? Uh, that you know that have sort of gone the you know, labor movement into the to the rat. It's in, but I, I absolutely think. I absolutely think that in things that could be learned, especially you know in the sort of the the shop floor organizing of like 
identifying leaders and and being able to develop them and and uh, sort of you know how a, an organizer approaches you know you know with those leaders in, a, in an unorganized workplace like having you know the idea of them them mapping their workplace or sort of uh, to sort of the you know how that could be translated over to DSA. Uh, a given DSA chapter in a in a particular city or region. Right. So, uh, this, sort of let me just interrupt. Out, so this idea yeah, of ahead. mapping your workplace is what you do in an organizing campaign, right? Is you try to figure so, out who, where are the workers, and who's the leaders. Uh, and I was sort of also talking about like not only that, but also sort of like the power structure analysis, right? Like, and and how you not just identify, uh, you know, who are the leaders, and you know, uh, in your in a workplace, but also. Uh, you know the who you know who's in charge and for the, how they wield influence in in their region. Like that same that same that same model can be applied uh, by a, a DSA chapter to build up to you know this uh, particularly for these a lot of these new chapters right build up to the scale of being able to uh, you know to be as you know as disruptive as a union could potentially be right. So mm-hmm. so you know a lot of the discussion right is around. Uh, DSA, you know, in DSA has been about like how we engage in an electoral strategy. What we've seen is, and I think, and I think rightly is, is being able to is, you know, we are we're still we're still sort of blossoming, <laughs> so to speak, and getting our, you know, you know, getting you know, uh, you know, a sense as to you know what we can do. And the the mapping that you talk about, it's very similar to what Bianca is saying she does in the chapter mentoring too. It's it's, it's uh, mapping out uh, organizations to talk to and. Um, Sean, just to follow up on that, what do you think is the way forward for DSA electorally? You know, I think that the discussion has largely has been around like, you know, as focused solely on our on, on DSA's alleged, you know, relationship or perceived relationship with Democratic Party. And I think that just I, I while I understand the concern, I guess I understand uh, the sort of underlying sentiment of like needing to desperately move away from that, you know, that organization. I think it's also important that we, again, we just don't have the scale to really mount the challenge. And so we need to build, we need to build that strength. And I think we also, uh, and that means, you know, we also need to sort of create, you know, that, that pipeline, uh, where we are, where we're developing, you know, leaders and potential, you know, a potential group of folks that are, you know, an elected office. Uh, that we can, you know, maybe eventually, you know, hit, you know, get win, win a, a congressional race, win a governor's a governorship. So uh, start, start small and build yeah. is your yeah. your approach. Uh, Bianca, do you have thoughts on electoral? Uh, this, you know, the convention's coming up in a couple of weeks, and all this is going to get debated out. Um, so I, I just want to hear some different, yeah, viewpoints on this. But uh, Bianca, do you have thoughts on the electoral strategy? What that might look like? Sure. So I'll just say this. One of the things that I always notice whenever I'm mentoring new chapters is that they automatically think that political work means electoral work. And so oftentimes when I have conversations and I say, you know, what are some of the issues in your town and what are, you know, what's your vision? They always immediately start talking about um, political races. And it really, I, I mean, I have to say to me, is not the always the right way to go. Um, I do agree with Sean, which says that we need to create a pipeline. So which means that we need to like grow our own ranks and um, have somebody come up out of those ranks that, you know, that could 
possibly run for office. But then we also need to think further than that. And like, how do we hold them accountable? Right. And like, if they can, if them being elected, what, you know, what difference does it really make at the end of it? Not saying that it doesn't, but I'm saying we just need to like really be honest with ourselves about, you know, asking these kinds of questions. Electoral work takes so many resources, so much of a time suck. um, And I, and I just, I, I mean, to me, I think, people in my chapter are really familiar, uh, you know, with my uh, hesitancy towards electoral politics. You know, I tend to think that we should be a little bit more grassroots and be like in the communities and be fighting for like um, issues that people care about and not necessarily to get folks elected. Um, but one, one thing I will say is that I, uh, you know, I do take a stance on um, only endorsing, uh, offering our endorsement to openly socialist candidates. Um, and so I know a lot of people disagree with me on that. I've been in many of those disagreements. People probably disagree with me on here. But uh, uh, those are my thoughts on electoral well, uh, politics. So, so go a little further with that. Why do you think we should only endorse, uh, like, clearly, you know, people who are explicitly saying, I'm running as a democratic socialist or I'm running as a socialist? I just feel like we're in this moment where DSA is like this trendy and cool thing. And I don't know about other places, but I do, I can speak for my own city, which is New York City. I'm like, I think that we're seen as like this mobilization machine essentially. And so I really am like weary about um, Democrats coming and saying, oh, you know, and like they have like really approaching us, act like aggressively and wanting us to endorse them or work on their campaign because they know it's a huge addition for them. Um, when, 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 when we might agree on some things, but but ultimately you may not make the right decisions or we don't really ideologically align like at the end of the day. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm just weary of like being, you know, offering up our endorsement and attaching our name to, you know, these Democratic, some Democratic candidates who, you know, down the line, their actions are going to be reflective upon us. And, mm -hmm. and, and so I just like to play a little bit harder to get. Um, and people may remember that the, Democratic Socialists of America came and talked to me about this person. I just think that we just need to be a little bit more um, disciplined right. in our endorsements. And and also, I think that we should be focusing, like I said, on like our communities. And um, it's my tendency to, you know, think about things, you know, like I, I'm a person, I'm a black woman. I live in a mostly, uh, you know, a black community. And I can say that a lot of people in my community don't give two craps about electoral politics nor or, or any politician democrat or republican coming to the door talking to them about any issue to be mm -hmm. honest they feel so disenfranchised and so to me i feel like that's an opportunity for us to like you know talk to them about the issues that they care about and develop like an issue-based campaign or find um other organizations to be aligned with that are like tenants organizations right um you know in the community it can help on these issues and really be closer to the people rather than just like representing some face that mm -hmm. won't mean anything to them in the future it's my two cents eric do you want to you want to throw your two cents into this one yeah it's a little bit more than two cents but uh a <laughs> dollar uh, fifty or whatever yeah i mean to me i think fundamentally i think it, it's it's we got to get away from political action and endorsements and those types of things being a moral question and get it you know kind of I think you know develop some cohesion around the, the 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 notion that it's a tactical question. I believe that you know you have different uh, electoral politics can you know, play different roles. I mean the the role that uh, we wanted to play obviously is building power, uh, moving the 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 political uh, center uh, by you know running left candidates and th and running our own people for office and those kind of things. Um, 
but there's also times where I, I, I agree with Bianca in the, sen- in the in the sense that um, I, I don't think that we should just endorse all the Democrats and play a role in all these different races. I think we need to look at what our priorities are and what fits into those priorities. Uh, probably the biggest example I could use to encapsulate what I where I'm at is is this uh, I don't know if y'all I'm sure y'all heard about him Randy Bryce uh, oh, yeah. the Iron Iron right, right right um, and he's he, he's not a socialist um, but he's you know he's 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 a very left wing worker he's a worker uh, candidate and he's running against Paul Ryan and um, I feel like I was opposed I, I had issues with the policy that had just been implemented in DSA where we only endorse open socialists. Because I, you know, as a leftist for decades, we always wanted rank and file workers to run for office. I mean, that was what—that's what you want to see, and they're not going to come out of it. They're—they're going to be—they're uneven stages of development, you know, for uh, you know, just working class people that run for office, and so they may not be where we are yet. But Randy Bryce is 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 about as good as it gets without being a socialist, um, and he's going to take on this, you know right-wing uh, lightning rod that we everybody wants to see defeated and I and I see that as an, as an opportunity for the left to be able to get in a race that we aren't you know, we're not running one of our own but it would but him winning would really shock uh, and 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 really uh, I think make it have a huge impact on American politics um, regardless of the fact he's not a socialist um, and uh, you know the response to everybody is we're a socialist organization we should only endorse socialists well that has not really been the tradition of the american left okay i mean the fact is is that you've always had this notion going back you know to the beginning of the la- le- the left and the labor movements of critical support where you endorse people that are not 100% in line with you but are somehow playing a role in developing independent working class politics you know and and i think that randy rice is one of those people i mean I think that you know the Bernie Sanders model, if we could ever replicate it, would be the way I'd like to see everything happen. Um, unfortunately, we've only got one independent socialist U.S. senator. I think you know him running as a Democrat was the right decision. I think it made uh, perfect sense. Um, I, I think that people put a lot more, uh, give a lot more weight to the question of what ballot line you run on. It, you know, if you run as a Democrat, it somehow taints you, um, and you're somehow, but. You know, making a, a compromise when, in my view, it's it's it's, a, it's simply acknowledging the obstacles within the U.S. electoral system, and I think we're better served getting people running them, you know, and obviously, preferably people who are members of DSA running them for office and using whatever ballot line makes sense in that particular area, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I would much rather spend time campaigning for one of a DSA member that's running as a Democrat than going out and, you know, gathering petitions just to get on the ballot. In in, um, in Georgia, you know, there's, the ballot access is, has up, up until recently was very prohibitive, um, and the Greens couldn't even get on the ballot when they lowered the threshold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it was, I, I think I think that people don't understand in in many places that's a that's a difficulty, and that's you have to not only think about running for office, you got to think about how to get even get on the ballot. Right. Um, and as, as an independent, and I don't. I, I think that the, we also have a very real interest, whether we want to support or openly endorse uh, Democrats. Uh, I think that you know uh, elections have consequences. Um, Hillary losing to Donald Trump was not a good thing. I don't care which way you look at it; it mattered. Yeah, that's you know? right. Um, and and now we can, we look at what he's done. We got a, now we've got a, a Supreme Court that's going to start ramming all kinds of anti-union crap down our throats. 
and we've uh, you know we've got a literally we have the CEOs of corporations running departments of the government now and uh, you know whether you how much no matter how much you hated hated Hillary Clinton the fact is is that her losing had a had a negative impact on us and so uh, I'm, I'm for more of a just a tactical approach to things uh, whatever makes sense at that particular time I don't fetishize people running on a democratic ballot line mm-hmm. um, in particular in places like New York where they're that that's the establishment party and you, you know running as a green is is just as you know or running as a working families party candidate or whatever isn't that big of a deal because you're not going to be the spoiler you're not right. going to be delivering you're not going to be handing an election to a to a to a nasty neo-fascist republican in most cases i mean what what's going on from what i can tell around the country as well is that you know without dsa organizing things at uh, at, at a central place there are dsaers who are just simply out running for office and, and we actually go ahead I'm sorry no, well, no. we we actually ran a, a guy here in in Georgia. Uh, I I was one of the people that sort of helped him, uh, you know, with his campaign uh, initially and helping him work through the endorsement process, you know, getting endorsements and things like that. But he joined DSA. Uh, he was a Bernie Krat. Uh, he's a, a and he was a, a leader of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement here in Atlanta, and was part of Fight for 15. Had been a union activist, and you know, we ran him for a city council of a newly formed city. Uh, it's going to be it's the second biggest city in Georgia now, and he won. Yeah. You know, what, what, uh, what's his name again? Can you Khalid Kamal? Yeah, um, in St. Louis, I know that uh, initial some discussions around electoral stuff came up, and it turned out there were already three or four DSA members running for offices in various places. You know, small uh, suburban city council and that sort of thing. Um, so there's sort of a wave of activity happening, and in some ways DSA is riding it and, and coming along with it, but, we're, but not in any sense centrally, you know, uh, making it, uh, pushing it forward. And I wonder, you know, in the future, I guess that's really the goal, is trying to create the kind of structures and systems where we can, uh, you know, make these, this wave even bigger and, and push it even further. How, where, how does electoral work fit into, um, you know, what you see as like a broader strategy for, for winning socials? And particularly also how does worker organizing work together with that in tandem or not? So, I mean, I think that um, the political organizing, um, and by the way, we are endorsing, we have endorsed officially two um, candidates for city council here. Um, in New York City, um, in Brooklyn, both of them are open socialists and members of Democratic Socialists of America, one after he declared um, because we pushed him to join and he did, and the other one was already a member. Um, but one of the things, I, I mean, look, I know that there's like, a, you know, we have a huge, elect- our electoral working group is one of the largest working groups here. There's a lot of um, enthusiasm around doing electoral work. People really love it. Um, and so I definitely don't want to deny, I always talk about how there's these different entry points into the movement. And I'm certainly not trying to deny anybody or think I could or anybody should be denied those entry points if they want to do electoral work, sure. Um, but the role, the, the benefits that I see that come out of it is that people are activated who are interested in those types of things. Um, and that um, also, you know, it's great for list building and for familiar, familiarizing yourself with um, certain neighborhoods um, and communities and what the issues are and how people feel um, for future 
um, you know, for future purposes of organizing. And I would just say as along the lines of like worker organizing, um, one of the things that we started doing here is I don't know if you all are familiar with um, this book by Les Leopold called Runaway Inequality, where he kind of like touches um, on like what he would call like um, financialization of America or, um, you know, the the intersection between capitalism, um, racism, immigration and the climate justice uh, war. And, and, and one of the things that we've been able to do um, and CWA started offering it as political education for their members very successfully. Um, CWA is, uh, you know, the core of CWA is like landline members who are normally like white uh, middle class you know cis men and 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 it's been eye-opening for them to take this and realize that like this is why you know we fight for black lives matter this is why we we want skin in the game when it comes to cli the climate justice war and we just don't focus on just labor issues this is why we have to show up for them because all of our liberation is tied into one another so it's been eye-opening for them in that way and i've witnessed that but one of the things that dsa was able to do is take that same training and adapt it um through a, to a more socialist, uh, through a most through a more socialist lens, I would say, and then offer that to our members who have unions and say, hey, if you can get five to ten people this on Saturday that are willing to take this training, we'll offer it to you. So I also feel like it's our job to like also politicize um, union members, uh, non-union members, um, everyone alike, you know. And that's what I would say electoral work does. It excites people, brings them in, and then we can do the work from there. Well, we've got um, a convention coming up here in about three weeks. Um, let me ask everyone, what, what do you hope comes out of this convention? What do you think we need to do there to um, sort of maximize our momentum at this point? Sure. Um, I think it's relatively important that we that we increase our capacity. I mean, we've got we only have uh, we have 24,000 members and we uh, I think we, the staff is, you know, less than 10. Right. Um, and uh, we need, you know, but and we, we have an organization that's got that many members and only pays yearly dues. So I'm in, you know, I'm in, I think increasing capacity is relatively important. I think uh, um, giving people a it, figuring out how to best you know integrate all these all these uh, members and, and creating a, the ability for the organization to develop people a lot along the lines of what Bianca's talking about but on a bigger scale you know um, having trainings available to folks so that they can help build a, a more kind of a political a longer lasting political operation mm -hmm. uh, I'm sort of curious what's going to happen when we hit like November December of this year and everybody's uh, year dues come up that joined like right after Trump won. Um, I think that's going to be interesting to see how many people stay. Well, what should we do about that? I mean, we, we had conversations about that in St. Louis um, as well. But what, what should be a what's a reasonable approach to maintain membership? Well, I think uh, I think the stuff Bianca's doing, uh, you know, with the mentorship stuff. I do. I, I mentor a couple of chapters myself, and um, you know, I think that that's really critical to keeping these folks to uh, where they see the big picture, so they don't bounce out. Like you said, uh, I don't know if it was you or who said it earlier about you know they join DSA and then some, something would piss them off and they would jump out. You know, I mean that's. That's a, there's a real danger of that that people like get their feelings hurt by something that we vote on at the convention and 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 bail you know mm -hmm. just 
basically creating an organization that can integrate that big of a group of people, I think, is a big task. And if, if we get that done at the convention, with uh, I'll be relatively happy. I think uh, the labor uh, working group has come up with some good proposals on how we can develop a more a better labor operation. Um, so that's sort of my focus. I, I'm not as uh, I, I definitely don't want to see us move away from that, you know, flexible strategy around electoral politics. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a key to our success. It's the very reason why we got where we are. Um, so I don't think that uh, the people that, you know, talk about how this is a failed strategy, uh, you know, are, are really not being fair because the fact is many of them wouldn't have joined if the, if, if, uh, if it hadn't been for the DSA being involved in the Bernie campaign, you know, I, I, so I, I think that, but I don't think anybody's proposing to junk that. So I think we're going to, we'll be in good shape coming out of that. So I think focusing on uh, just how, fleshing out the organization and uh, and really looking at it almost like it's a new organization and, and creating structures that can absorb all these, you know, this, this huge influx of people. Well, Sean, um, you know, Eric just was talking about the, the, the capacity um, question, and a big part of that is the money. Um, and there are some proposals out there to change to, uh, you know, monthly dues, which seem seems like like what Eric's suggesting is, is very likely to happen. What do you think are reasonable dues le levels or how how do you think that should uh, play out? Do you have a, a feel for that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I know I know that there's sort of the overarching I understand that these the, the overarching sort of competing uh, resolutions or ideas is uh, some sort of, uh, you know, nothing involving dues, but something that, you know, redistributes the dues back to chapter and some by some sort of percentage formula or uh, uh, a, a monthly uh, a monthly dues. You know, I, I, I've seen the concerns and I understand the concerns about, you know, new members, particularly, you know, working, uh, you know, more working class and uh, uh, members not being able to afford something on a monthly basis. But I, you know, I, I think I think about it in the in the same way that, uh, you know, probably Bianca and Eric can relate to is just like, you know, just like how we approach the conversation about dues with our, our members or with folks who are, you know, we're, you know, working with to help them win their union and saying, like, this is how much it is, but it, this is what it builds towards in the future. Uh, this is the capacity, you know, that, you know, that it, it allows us to have and to it, moving forward. And I think we should frame it in the same way, just like, you know, obviously scale it, I think, in, a, in, a, in, a, in terms of uh, folks' income. Uh, uh, an individual member's income, but saying like this isn't an, an assessment that we're you're asking members to contribute because it'll build our power moving forward and it provide provide us the base to do important things like I think particularly uh, you know something that I you know something that I think the dues would be really important is to uh, provide us the resources to really do the support provide the support for these new chapters these new chapters in rural areas and the, and in the south to really really provide them a more cons you know consistent and and in uh, uh, you know, uh, staff support. I think that the mentorship program it obviously is, has been going, you know, well, but I think, you know, more consistent and reliable, you know, support, not to, to infer that someone isn't reliable who's a mentor, <laughs> um, but that, that, that staff support can go a long way into really making sure that these chapters aren't just a, are, aren't just a one shot, but are really sustained on, in the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, Bianca, what do you think about the, the question of the split between splitting dues between chapters and the national? Do you want to weigh in on that? Sure. So, I mean, I, I'm, I openly support the 80-20 split, be 80 going to the national, 20 going to the chapters. 
Um, I feel like funds should be allocated on the need of basis or on the basis of need. And I also would just say that I also like encourage folks to like learn like the fundamentals of fundraising. I know that's one of the um, we've been doing national trainings. The first one being at the People Summit, and we certainly when we recently did one here in New York City for members all across um, the country that came. It was for women and non-gender conforming folks, and it was the Ella Baker training we did at the Rosa Luxemburg Siftung, where we talked about how to fundraise. And I think that you know more than just yeah, I agree. Uh, we need more capacity in the national level um, for support, but also we need to like be giving these tools about how to fundraise and how to um, manage your funds um, to chapters all across the country. Um, and yeah. they could probably take it from there. I mean, I agree I agree with that, uh, the idea of teaching chapters to how to fundraise because I know at Saint, in St. Louis, um, we started raising a lot of money um, simply by putting a can out at meetings right. and socials. And if you don't think, if you don't know that you should put a can out that says, you know, donate, um, people don't do it. You, you know, if, if it's, you've never been taught to do that, it's not a natural thing to do. Uh, people are always nervous about asking for money. And so, um, but then when we did it, we were surprised that that can would be absolutely packed with money by the end of the event. And we would be able to pay for the entire event uh, and, and more from that. So I think it's really important for locals to go out and, and you know, figure out how to fundraise for themselves as well. Because we also need a very strong national, you know, uh, office that can do the kind of support that Sean's talking about. Um, Eric, do you have anything that you want to jump in on, on in terms of the, the dues question? No, I mean, I, 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 I haven't really come down hard on the split uh i think the 80 20 there was a 50 50 there is or was a 50 50 split proposal out there and i thought that that was kind of unwieldy uh mm -hmm. so I, I i would have opposed that but i think that uh 80 20 you know having some local resources kick back this way uh in in particular i think it's gonna just be uh, uh there's just it could there's a lot of there'll be a lot of money if if we go to monthly dues and i think that having local capacity uh, on the ground would be fantastic and you know hell if we have enough money on the you could you could foresee with a big enough chapter having some people on staff at the, for the chapters you know oh, that's if, right it, um, at a certain point because I just think you're talking just the multiplier of weekly going from yearly to weekly is is, is or to monthly um, is pretty pretty jaw-dropping with if you do the math with 24,000 people um, and um, I, I so I, I'm okay with that. I, I think uh, there was a there was a proposal out there to peg the dues, uh, the monthly dues at one percent of income, and I thought that that was just too, uh, I don't know, it was too unwieldy for people. Um, I think that you know, kind of coming up with a sort of a standard dues rate, uh, you know, the sort of uh, five dollars low income, ten dollars, uh, you know, lower, you know. Five or ten dollars lower income, and then maybe a twenty dollar a month for a regular standard dues rate, and then having a higher one for sustainers, probably makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. um, and the math will be easier too, um, in terms of ca calculating uh, what people's dues are and things like that. Yes, if people want to donate at uh, one percent, we definitely want to make that available to them. <laughs> sure. Um, but uh, the, great, the great one of the great parts about this is is that we're able to most people will set up a monthly dues deduction from their uh, you know now that you can you can do that with a you know your debit card and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that makes it a lot more uh, the the fundraising a lot more uh, viable um, because we're we'll we'll have a more uh, 
dependable revenue stream coming in that we can utilize as opposed to waiting for people to mail checks in and things like that. Sean, what, what do you think a successful convention feels like in a couple of weeks? What does it look like? Well, I think, uh, I think, you know, first, you know, scalable, scalable and realistic goals. I think, I think it's, you know, a lot of the conversation I've seen and, you know, there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm going on, but I think, uh, you know, I hope the convention and, and the sort of the, the sheer number of folks that are there and the sort of uh, the, the spectrum of, of viewpoints on the future sort of provides a little, you know, a little bit of pause to, to, to the majority of, of delegates so that, you know, so that we, you know, we, uh, you know, are sort of a little bit more realistic about, you know, what we do for the next two years. And I think it's that's the other thing, too, is it's important to realize that this is just, you know, sort of laying the, 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 the blueprint for what we do for the next two years. This is not this is not the end all be all right and i think that's i think that's most important you know pers you know personally at, at a chapter level uh, you know we're really looking forward to making a lot of connections with other new york state delegations and and you know uh, and and building those relationships and finding you know what you know find identifying you know things that we are doing well things that we are you know, also struggling with and how we can sort of uh, collaborate a little bit more effectively so and and similarly there are you know there are other chapters that i follow uh, you know that I, I'm really hoping to connect with, and I know other folks in, the, in our chapter are hoping to connect with and sort of uh, learn some some best practices from you know chapter, and it, particularly in our case in the capital district, chapters that are a lot more like us and maybe uh, you know or and 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 in terms of scope and size rather mm -hmm. than uh, New York City or Chicago or even a, a you know a place like Atlanta. Uh, you know we're we're small towns, even though we're the state capital. We're actually we're, you know, there's a reason why they call us small beneath. So. Uh, that's that's what I'm hoping. To <laughs> um, so. uh, Bianca, last you get the last uh, question in terms of this. What what does a really good uh, convention look like to you? I mean, so one of the things that we haven't spoke about and like uh, what we could use from the union model, I mm -hmm. think, and something that's going to be instrumental in DSA's success going forward. Now that we have all these folks and we're so big ten, is solidarity. I mean, listen. We've got to build relationships, network with one another, and assume the best out of our comrades and, and really show a strong sense of solidarity if we're going to withstand whatever's going to come at us for the next two years. Um, a successful convention to me is going to leave people, is going to, is going to leave people inspired. Um, people need to feel inspired, whether it's by um, comradely debates or whether it's by, um, you know, ideas and strategy put forth um, by the candidates in MPC and other members, um, whether it's something that they learn in the trainings, whatever it is, they need to have learned something and they need to be um, on fire when they leave the convention. And I hope that, you know, folks take you know, these things into account going forward, uh, you know, going into it, um, that yes, there are NPC election, National Political Committee elections coming up. Yes, there are opponents, but we all are on each other's team. And I always tell, you know, people here in the chapter and in, in the trainings, you know, we all are, are each other's best resource. And so without each other, we have nothing. Um, and I hope that um, people keep that in mind going into the convention. Well, that's a great way to end this podcast. Um, I want to thank Eric and Bianca and Sean for joining us. Um, Jonathan, as always, uh, for being here with us today. If you have listened to this entire podcast and you are not a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, I think it's time <laughs> for you to join. 
Um, I've seen. Some... Are you referring to me, Sam? Well, I no, not necessarily, Jonathan. But if you're not a member right now, then you know somebody's going to come over and sign you up. Um, no, so we. Um, this is a uh, this is a time to uh, make this organization work, and uh, it's an incredibly exciting uh, place to be. So dsausa.org is the place you can go to to join and get involved in your local chapter. And again, I want to thank everybody for being with us. Thanks to everyone for listening. This has been the Smash Up Derby. If you have any thoughts or, or comments or questions for us, uh, hit our website, smashuppodcast.com. There's an ask or a comment button uh, or hit us up on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast.